Unker sold his business Teachable for $250 million at the age of 29 years old. And what's incredible is that this wasn't just a one-hit wonder. His track record goes all the way back to when he was a teenager, making up to $100,000 in a single day building Facebook apps. Today we're getting the blueprint to his success, why he cashed out, and how you can get started creating the next big business. On today's episode of Subscribe, because we're closing in on 400,000 subscribers, it would mean a lot to us. And uh, hey, you know what? These are totally free. It's totally free to do. But first, we want to thank today's sponsor, StreamYard. Now, here's the thing. In the last episode that we did, I dared you guys. I said that if you're not signing up for StreamYard, let me know what I have to do to get you to sign up for StreamYard. And we got a few comments, okay? One of them said, I dared Jack interview Graham for a podcast and I'll get StreamYard. Uh, what's your favorite color? I love chrome orange. That's oh, okay. Okay. Sure. I will subscribe to StreamYard if Graham gets me a date with my favorite supermodel, he could even broadcast it. So first of all, we got to know who your favorite supermodel is. So comment back. Let me know who your favorite supermodel is. I will DM her and I will see if she will go on a date with you so that you will sign up for StreamYard. We need your Instagram too, though. StreamYard is a live streaming studio platform that's perfect for creators who want to start making content on a budget. All you got to do with StreamYard is turn on the camera and start making the content that you want to make, and they will take care of the rest. You can create high-quality content right from your browser and stream directly to Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, along with many other platforms. They also make it simple to brand and customize your videos before you even go live. A huge perk that I found is that you can actually multi-stream so you can stream to all of your favorite platforms all at once, just expanding your reach for free. Think about it. If you're making content for YouTube Live, you may as well be on Twitch and Facebook and every other streaming service at the same time. So start making professional looking live stream videos with StreamYard for free today with the link down below in the description. And again, if you're on the fence about it, you can always dare us to do something. So let us know what we could do for you. Again, down below in the comments. Thank you so much. Try it out today. And now with it said, let's get back to the podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Ice Coffee Hour. My name is Ankur Nathwal. I am. I was the founder of Teachable, and now I'm the founder of Ocho. Uh, we're here to help business owners build wealth. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. This is my first time in Brooklyn in quite a long time, and I'm shocked how like trendy everyone is. I was telling Alex on the way here, like everyone is under the age of 35 there's, and really fashionable. There's no children or old people here. My parents, when they were visiting, they they found no one within 20 or 30 years of their age. Everyone here is. I would say between 20 and 30, yeah. childless, and yeah, that's that's the vibe. Yeah, yeah. some more time in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is cool. It's my first time in New York. Yeah, it's Welcome. crazy yeah. here. I love New York. This is, is so much fun. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a bit of your uh, your background and how you got started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm a first generation immigrant. I moved. I grew up in Oman in the Middle East after being born in India. So it was a very third culture sort of life because. You're Indian, yet I've never lived in India, grew up in the Middle East, and then moved to America for college uh, in, to California. Mm. And yeah, it was a very sort of uh, interesting journey to America, but very, very grateful to be here. Tell us about your, your entrepreneurial journey. Where did that start? I think for a lot of people, and I was one of them, even ever since I was eight or nine years old, you always try to come up with these silly little business ideas. Like I think the first business idea I had is I would tear out posters from a magazine and sell it to my parents' friends. And some of them were nice and humored me and actually bought it. Um, all the way to a website I designed with my brother, uh, I think it's probably age 11 or 12. Mm. Um, it was like a web portal where you could go, log on, get news, all of that stuff. Never quite launched it, but it got me started, you know, realizing I wanted to be an entrepreneur of some kind. Yeah. Um, I still remember even then my brother was traumatized, but I ended up hiring him 
as one of my employees. I think I was like 12 or 13 and he was three years younger than me. Yeah. Gave him 1% of equity. And every time oh, he yeah. didn't actually work, I would fire him and, you know, take away his 1% of equity. He would go crying to my parents. 1%. Yeah, he would cry to my parents, being like, I've lost my 1% or whatever. I had to give yeah. it back to him. But yeah, so I've always sort of had the makings of that um, before formally taking yeah. the plunge. But how were you thinking about that, like 1% equity at the age of like 12 or 13? Like, where does that come from? Well, I probably didn't even know the word equity. I just yeah. gave him 1%, which is okay. kind of mean, right? You would give yeah, him 10%, yeah, maybe, 20%. Yeah. 1% is kind you of mean. Shafted him, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a combination of like older brother bullying as okay. well like a little bit of that thrown in uh, but I properly took the dive into like building a business I think my freshman year of college uh, it was the summer of 2007 uh, Facebook had just launched the Facebook app platform and I ended up building a couple of Facebook applications and by the end of that summer I started making 10 or 20 dollars a day and that was completely life-changing to realize that you could do something on the internet yeah. and earn a living. It was like, you know, a light bulb went off. And since then, I, you know, have been building different types of businesses. Yeah. Where well, were you at college? I was at college in California, Berkeley. Berkeley. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that summer specifically, I was interning at Amazon in Seattle. Wow. I was 18 years old. Your two, first year? First year. First year. I was 18 years old, Amazon. interning in Seattle as a software engineer. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, did not like my team or coworkers. I had no idea what was happening. Right, I felt too it was too early for the real world in a lot of ways, and and it coincided with this time when you know I had all this time in Seattle and I started you know building Facebook applications and yeah, it was a good time. Did you ever have a job before doing all of this, like any sort of you know summer jobs or anything? You dove straight head first into this. So that's what's interesting is growing up in Oman in the Middle East, there's no culture of like children working. You don't yeah. actually work until you have a job. But my freshman, uh, my freshman year of college, I was working at a gym very briefly, like helping them with their systems or whatever. That was my yeah. one sort of hourly job. But even that was in college. Got it. I'm always curious because you said you went to Berkeley. So it means you must have been pretty academic in high school. Do you think that like there's a relationship between people being extremely academic and then starting startups, or do you think that they're inversely related? Or I think I mean I think there's some kind of relationship, but just to be clear, I did get into Berkeley, but I got rejected from my other nine top schools. I think I was I had a really good SAT score, but like my academic grades were what let me down when you sort of looked at my college application because I played sport internationally, I had great SATs, my my high school grades were really bad. That was like the one reason. Why were they bad? I think it was, I don't know, I think like they're really good until like seventh or eighth grade and then, you know, you get distracted by life and trying to be cool and all this other stuff and not really studying much and all of that, but I was... Define bad though, because I know some parents would be like, you got to be <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good bad. Yeah, yeah, fair. I would say, let's say there were like 30 people in the class, 35 in like, or one of my classes, I would be like, you know, number 10 or 12 or whatever, which is not And you still bad. got into Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, but good SAT scores. What was the SAT good. score? Yeah. I see, I had a perfect 800 in math and a 700 in English and... For my application, English was my second language. It wasn't really, but you know, I grew up, I grew up Indian and stuff. So it was a 1500, which was, yeah, yeah, I was happy that's, with. That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. If anything, I think like being good at school probably slightly correlates with, you know, being good at starting a business, but not too much because mm. you sort of have to be a rule breaker a little bit and kind of defy authority. I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, which doesn't, which when you think about the kids that were best at school, they were the ones who saw an authority figure and, you know sort of followed it. So I think you kind of want to have a balance of being smart, but also, you know, 
disrespecting authority a little bit if you want to want to start something. Yeah. I feel like there's something there where you're bad at school and you do really well on the SAT. It just yeah. shows like, yeah. I feel like that's a pretty good, yeah. like a yeah. couple of things that occur that shows pretty high raw just intelligence, yeah. Yeah. which I feel like also is probably I, pretty I feel indicative like I, of... For instance, I always did better on tests. Like a lot of people do worse on tests. For me, like I typically would do better on an actual test versus a practice test for whatever reason. So like I always feel like the pressure is actually something I enjoy and I do better at. How do you get accepted by Amazon? What led to that? I had an inter interview in college. Um, I thought I bombed my interview because yeah. he asked me three questions and I got all of them. I didn't find the correct answer, but what you do is you talk out loud, right? It was like solving a programming problem and you just explain your thought process out loud. But I left the interview telling my parents, being like, yeah, there's no way this is happening. Like I bombed it. Um, but no, uh, they actually, they, yeah, they gave me an offer. What were the questions? I can't remember. It was like a programming puzzle that you have to solve. And, you know, I walked him through, but I never came to the solution. Uh, but it kind of blows my mind. Even the summer I actually worked there, I didn't do much work at all. In fact, I can't say I did anything, yet they invited me back for the second summer. So I think it's also the systems, you know, at the end of the day, they have to hire so many software engineers that once you make it into a big company, at some level, you're there by default. Mm -hmm. And it was very disheartening as well, because while I was at this big company, my entire team was working on a single page of the Amazon app. Like it was a manager inventory page on Seller Central. My entire team's purpose was this one page. And that was very disillusioning, right? Like that was the first taste of like what it feels like to be a cog in a machine where your entire team just works on one single page. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's about as far as I've gotten to working at a large company. Doesn't it seem highly inefficient to do something like that? Couldn't one person do that in like a, a day or two? That's what Why? I would believe, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like the assembly line, right? Like workers had a greater sense of job satisfaction when they built something from scratch, but then, then you introduce the assembly line where everyone's job was just this one very specific thing and it made people unhappy. I think it was the same thing at large companies. You just subdivide what people are working on to such a small silo that I, yeah, kind of was soul crushing. Interesting. So you yeah. think that actually negatively affects happiness when somebody has like one sole focus within a, like a, like you were explaining a cognitive machine or like with yep. the... Yep, exactly. Like I think, I think that there was research on this, I mean, uh, where if a worker creates something from scratch, there's a sense of accomplishment. But if all you're doing is pushing one nail in, so your entire team is creating something, you lose that sense of accomplishment. You're just... Yeah, you're just doing a very, very siloed task. And can you say what they were paying you at the internship? Yeah, they were paying me $5,500 a month. Wow. Yeah. Oh, at my. 18. Yeah, that was crazy. No way. Yeah, that was. That was how, how long ago was that? That was 2007. That was, a, yeah, college. Yeah. That's that's like yeah. what you could graduate college. I know, and like, just but, get that and be like a good but, job. Yeah. At, yeah. But you know what? The $20 a day I was making doing things on the internet was so much more exciting than that. Because the fact that I could sit behind my computer, do stuff, and get money mm -hmm. was it was a light bulb. I mean, that basically made me unemployable after that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, how did you see Facebook as the next opportunity for that? So, I was in Amazon. I was 18 years old. I didn't have a fake ID. I didn't know anyone. I couldn't do anything for fun. Um, I spent my you know I spent my weekends and nights. Just had all this free time. I had a Facebook account at the time as a freshman in college. And you could, for the first time, build Facebook applications. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I was a huge cricket fan, which not a lot of people know over here, but I played internationally. That was my like mm -hmm. obsession. So I built a fantasy cricket app for Facebook over the course of that summer. And I didn't know how to code super well, but through that summer, I kind of taught myself everything because I had the objective of building this. And by building that, launching it, making a little bit of money is what sort of opened my eyes to the fact that you could build these applications, make money, and over the next two, three years, I just 
build hundreds and hundreds of apps and basically scale that business out. So these are just apps that you would find like on the app store, but then you charge some sort of like subscription service or ad revenue. Ad revenue was our primary revenue channel because then we moved to personality quizzes. So you would, you would get a notification. Wait, is this the Facebook personality quiz? Yeah, exactly. We, we were the OGs. Like we, I I remember. Yeah. But you were doing this back when Facebook was at its like heyday. Correct. Correct. I remember like everyone was on Facebook, like 2006 to 20. 10. Was so it backed by like science or was it kind of just like <laughs> no? Most... So, so there's this thing called uh, which Harry think, Potter are you? There's this like... thing called the Barnum effect, which says that like it's the attribute of us to read a description and to like kind of see how it belong, how like you identify with it, right? And a lot of these quizzes sort of work the same way where you could come up with the description, and a lot of people think that about themselves. Like, I you could like no matter what you answer in a quiz, I could tell you. You're mysterious. People think they know you, but do they really know you? Yeah, and <laughs> like, they're like, oh, that kind of yeah, is me. Right, I feel right, the right, exact right. same yeah. way about horoscopes. Yeah, yeah, I feel like yeah. horoscopes are just yeah. so vague and like arbitrary that yeah. anybody could read one of those things yeah. and be like, you know what? I'm a Libra. You yeah. know me. Yeah. I'm yeah. a Libra. I don't know what it was, but I read uh, someone who's really into horoscopes. I read something completely different for like a different sign, and they're like, yeah, that is it. Yeah. Like that's not even yeah. yours though. Yeah. yeah. The the other thing we found is a lot of people used these quizzes not to find out anything about themselves but to find the right snippet to share so what we would see for instance is let's say there's a quiz which friends character are you they would take the quiz repeatedly till they got the answer they wanted and then shared it yep so because remember right there's a social aspect of this as well it's not just wanting to know it it's wanting to tell everyone who you are so someone would take the quiz four (laughs) times they're finally joey and then then they share that one wow so and then it makes everyone else want to see which one yeah so it was a short that is so funny it was a shortcut to learning a lot about human psychology right like as we're building these apps and seeing everything um yeah it was really cool and yeah by the end of that by the time i was you know 20 21 um, had made real money through those apps and it, it just you know opened my eyes to the power of building something. How much were those making? So a lot of them peaked it like like when they got really, really big, it only lasted for a few days, but it we literally hit a daily maximum of fifty thousand dollars a day. Oh, wow. Um yeah. And over the course of the apps it like I think it, it made over a million dollars, you know, over the few years. Now some of them obviously were not successful. What percentage did not hit, and which were those apps? Like, why did they fail? Ironically, anything that was useful and had utility <laughs> oh, no. was a struggle. Like, was a struggle. That, yeah. Like, I mean, you build a calendar app, you build stuff that was actually like helpful to people, it didn't really work. The things that worked were basically things that appealed to vanity, right? So, friend quizzes worked really well, uh, which was you answer a question about your friend. So, you'd get a notification, maybe. You get a notification. It's like maybe it's a it's a girl. It'll be like this girl answered a question. Do you think Graham is cute? Click her to find out what she said. And now it'll take you inside the quiz. But to unlock her answer, you have to answer about twenty other of your friends, or you know, I pay us. Yeah, and you're sending ads to him the yep. entire way. Well, through. no. So there's ads at the bottom, oh. but you can also alternatively pay a dollar or do like a dollar worth of activities to unlock the answer without answering the question. So it was this idea of a virtual currency where. Um, you know, you could sign up for a Netflix trial or do these all these other things to unlock the answer. Wow. Um, it was a snapshot again into like human psychology. And my partner at the time built a very sophisticated system where we would input thousands of questions. It would rank each question's viral coefficient because some questions were better than others, then automatically update the highest performing questions in real time. So it worked really well. It was a pretty sophisticated system for the time, but 
yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I remember something on MySpace where they came out with what was an anonymous question? It could have been Facebook, yeah. but it's when you could you ask your audience a question, they could respond back, but it's anonymous. And you yeah. could be like, "Do you think I'm cute?" and everyone will respond uh, back and be like, "I have I've, no idea I've who seen it that. is." We though. stayed far from that because when we tried that, there was like bullying and stuff. So oh. that was the thing you have to be careful of. Uh, but yeah, a couple of things we did that was really good is we once had this. Uh, you would open the app, it would predict your best friends, and we people would be blown away by how accurate our predictions were. And all we would do is look at their photos and see who are they tagged in the most number of photos with. It worked so well. So it's like, open this app, we'll guess who your best friends are. And then people would be like, wow, how did you figure this out? And would you manually guess it? or did you? No, no, it was programmatic. Sort of like... Programmatically, what it would do is it would look at all your Facebook yeah. photos. It would see who you share the most photos with because all photos were tagged. Oh, okay. So we'd rank them by who you're in the most photos with. So it was very, very accurate. But now, that relies on Facebook giving you all that data. How easy was it for Facebook to It was. To if you remember, yeah. remember the whole Cambridge Analytica saga? Yeah. The reason that existed is Facebook gave you everything. Yeah. Back in the day, you could get all, when people added an application, you could see everything. Their friends, their friends' friends, like their photos, who they're in photos with, interests, everything. So at that time, that was all available. Yeah, I had a crazy, this is when it really hit me. Um, I think this was the early days of Facebook. I had purchased with a debit card, uh, like a, a deodorant, like an Old Spice deodorant or something like that. And then as soon as I went on Facebook right afterwards, I'd start getting ads of the Facebook deodorant. And I believe it was because I linked my phone number with my Facebook that was also linked to the debit card or something like that. And that was shared. And they made that connection that Graham just purchased deodorant. Let me show him this yeah. on Facebook. and Hopefully he buys it again. It's wild. How, how do you works. prevent that? Is that when I ask, like, do you want to accept cookies on this page? I feel like it's the cookies. I feel like, no, no. I feel like in the beginning, this is like you sign up for Facebook. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Facebook, like... now, Facebook now has changed their terms. of Like, now Facebook does not give any information to third parties. Mm. After the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, I think they realized that parties that were interested could, like, abuse that data. Like, for us, we didn't care. Like, mm. we use it for these quizzes. I never saved that data. The server space to save it is too expensive. Like, why would I care about it? But now they don't give you any of that. Interesting. And you have Apple, too. That's mm -hmm. really cracked down yep. on that for, for sharing. Hmm. How, do you, how did you justify in college when you're at Berkeley staying in college when you're making so much money? Like, you could have just, like, got being, that job at being Amazon. Indian, man. It's being Indian. Like, you, every time I talk to my parents about dropping out, they're oh, like, no, no. Just, just do it. But I, I was able to find a good balance. I didn't, I didn't spend that. I didn't go to class, really. Uh, I would study right before midterms and finals. I did okay. Um, and I, I just was like, let me take the path of least resistance, which was taking the easiest classes to get my degree. But yeah, at multiple points, I'm like, I don't understand the point of this. And I came close to dropping out, but I, I you know, stuck it through. What do you think about, like, because I feel like if you take the path of least resistance mm -hmm. and you still do well, yep. meanwhile, not working very hard, yep. like that's something that schools should appreciate and like celebrate, right? Because like, that's, but that's what I, goal. that's what I appreciate about the American system. Because I went to high school in an Indian high school and there was no substitute for just like doing a lot of work. But the American college system, there's a lot of potential for being smart about it, right? You have to hit a certain number of credits, but you can go to a professor, get credits for doing all these random activities. You can choose classes in a certain way that it give you, there was a system and like any, any good system, I wanted to beat it. And, you know, I found a way to like find easy classes, find easy professors, like uh, find certain classes I could take over the summer where it was much easier. So I, I you that know, that doesn't I, make sense. Yeah. I looked at it yeah. as a system to, system to defeat. And you know, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Is rate my professor still a thing? Yeah. 
it is yeah i had that. About that yeah yeah i was wondering if you it could was, just look online was, i wonder see, like, so i still remember and i wonder yeah. if like this is still appropriate but at the time rate my professor also had attacked with professors that were hot and i feel like today i, I don't they know, had they that used to yeah it would like have physically like, attractive like, spicy like yeah it had it a did. chili it had a yeah, chili oh, oh, oh i thought that meant popular no 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 there's a there's an attraction there's like how hot is your professor yeah people said that your professor was hot yeah exactly that's hilarious yeah i wonder i bet that's probably gone but yeah, back in the day, they had all of that. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How much would it cost you to develop some of these apps that you were making back then? I mean, most of it was pretty trivial. I built... So, firstly, I built the app. They were very simple to do. Then I would get my roommates involved, and they would all create content, and we'd, you know, create... would split the revenue and stuff. But then, in addition to running these apps, I would take the source code and sell the source code as well. So, you're selling picks and shovel. I was selling oh. everything. Yeah. So, I would sell the source code for, you know, $500, $1,000. Um, so anyone could take that and build an app with it. Did you not worry that people would just copy your designs and, and run you out of business? Yeah, but I figured like it's so simple that if I wasn't selling it, someone else would. So I may as well also tap into that. Cool. Did your brother get 1% equity? No, my brother had no equity. <laughs> he had no that, equity. But, but a, lot of my, a lot of my roommates had equity as I built yeah. these different businesses with them. And then what happened to that? Did it just fizzle out? Did you sell it? Or? So eventually these businesses, they would like, you know, application would grow and they would eventually sort of peter out. So there's no enterprise value being built. So yeah. I did sell a few of them, but if I sold them, it would be sold for like trailing 30 days revenue, 60 days revenue. There's not wow. a lot of, yeah. Um, and the other ones just died a natural death eventually. It would get to a couple million people and then it would have its moment in the sun and be, be done. Got it. Yep. And what did you do after college? So I ran this for a little bit after college, but I think around, around 21, I graduated college at 20. And around 21, this was fully done. And I spent two years figuring out what I wanted to do. So I wanted to start a business. Tried lots of ideas, but it was two, maybe three years of just nothing working. So probably tried eight to ten different startup ideas at the time. Uh, nothing quite worked. Somewhere in the middle of that, I moved to New York City. And then when I was 23, 24, started doing a little bit of teaching, uh, both in person at General Assembly and then online on Udemy. And that slowly evolved into starting Teachable. But between the Facebook apps and starting Teachable, it was just a lot of trying things that didn't work. Were well, you just yeah. living off of the over a million dollars you had earned yep, from all yep, of the apps and everything? Yep, yeah. Is it comfortable living? Yeah, it was comfortable. I mean, comfortable in the sense of my lifestyle at no point, especially then, was extravagant. Like, I did not, like, despite making that kind of money at 21, I did not, like, buy anything dumb and, you know, but it was very comfortable, so. What was your idea process like for, for thinking of different concepts? Would you just think for a while? Did you have a notepad writing down ideas? I would just try and find something and act upon it instantly because I find like inspiration is very fleeting. Sure. So less thinking, more doing. Uh, but yeah, we're all over the place. I had a, a couple, couple of the ideas were good. We just executed them poorly. Like a, an app where you could like order your like order toothpaste and stuff that we never quite built the fulfillment. So we just ordered it off Amazon and people then just realized they could order it off Amazon directly. But you know, there's something over there we built a domain name registrar to buy your name.com where we had a lot of different ideas, but nothing, nothing quite worked um, until starting Teachable. I want to tell you my two ideas and you, you give me your yep. honest yep. thoughts. You rank them. Okay. I have two ideas here. The first one, I'll get to that one, Jack. The yeah. first one, I wanted to create an app that was called parked where yeah. people could rent out their driveways Yep. because I remember in Venice Beach, Santa Monica, you could not find a parking spot, yep. but there were so many empty driveways. And I yep. thought, what if they just have an app where you check in in their driveway, you could park there and it charges you per minute. So unlike yep. a parking meter yep. where you just like, you have to guess, it just charges you yep. per minute. And then 
but anyway, there was a there was a company in San Francisco that tried that. Two of them, and yep. they both failed. And I thought, well, if they're doing it and both of them fail, yeah. I'm gonna fail on that too. What do you think of that idea? I think it depends on like what you what your goal is, right? Like the the reason a lot of startups fail is because for a startup to be viable, if you raise venture capital, you're really looking for an exit that could be billion dollars, billion dollars plus. And a lot of these turn out to be really nice small businesses, could cash flow a few million dollars a year, but because you go the venture route, it's not doable. So my inclination with something like that is it could totally be a really nice business. It's probably not venture scale. So mm-hmm. I think someone could make a nice living off it, but it's not the idea I would raise money for. Okay. And I think the companies in San Francisco probably fell into the trap of like raising venture dollars for it and realizing it's a cool opportunity, just not big enough for a venture size outcome. Got it. I think the other issue with that was that a lot of the houses that were in prime parking locations were worth millions of dollars. Yeah, so the and marginal. So the liability yeah, of yeah, yeah. having someone park there to earn like, you know, yeah. 10 cents in, uh, yeah, 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 a yeah. minute or something like that probably yeah. wasn't worth yeah. it. The other idea that I came up with that I thought was pretty good, yeah. it was called truthandtell.com, where basically it was a Yelp for people, where you could go and make a profile for someone else, upload their photo, and write a review on them, like Yelp. And uh, it was crazy, but we started this. We had a buddy who did all the coding on the back, and we created the website. And we created a fake Facebook account, and we just added thousands of people on this Facebook yeah. account. And then we started promoting Truth and Tell. This is back in like 2010, 2011. Are, am I um, doing this for like people I'm dating, friends, business associates had, across the we board? Just th- we yeah. just thought it would be an interesting concept because there's no... Uh, directory or like review yep. of a person. Yep. That didn't it was like exist, a Black so. Mirror episode, kind of like something this, like yeah, that. Yeah, but like yeah. I, my thinking is like, okay, let's say let's say for dating, you show up to somebody, they're they're creepy, they show yep. up yep. late, they're yep. disrespectful. It, it would be helpful. Let the there, next person. There <laughs> was an app in San Francisco for girls to rate. I remember dudes. that. Yeah, I yeah. That. Girls got, to rate you. They got so much yeah. hate on that. They got where like if you're a man, you couldn't even sign up for it. But it was like girls telling other girls about guys they're dating. It was like the centralized directory. And the problem with all these ideas is like one, it's rife for bullying. Yes. It's rife for like really bad behavior. And two, like incentives are kind of skewed, right? 100%. Like if you could theoretically, like if I, you piss me off, I could go there and like kind of hurt your reputation irrevocably for just my own angst or whatever. Yeah. That's why we never yeah, went yeah, with it. Yeah. Uh, we, we, the more we looked into it, the more we realized that people only write reviews if they're upset. If, if it's ever positive, they're less likely to write those reviews. Yeah. Like every one positive review, you probably have 10 great experiences where they mm-hmm. don't talk. Yep. Versus you have one bad experience, you have one bad review. Like the ratios are off there. So we never pursued it. But yep. Yep. I thought that would be interesting. If there's a way to do it legitimately. I always but had I an idea. It was, uh, you know, the unclaimed funds directory or whatever. I wanted to go on there and then figure out a way where I could scrub through all the data and then figure these people's addresses out, send them a letter, something there like, hey. Com- there are companies that do that. There are companies yeah. that do that? Do they make just they roll in it? Yeah. yeah, I was thinking like find a way, but like also it's based off of good faith because it's yep. their money already. Yep. So how would I yep. be yep. entitled to any of yep. that? Something like you know you could just make a charitable donation because yep. I made you aware of this, yep. which is very easy yep. to, just to get all that data. Contract. Yep. I get it. Do they really? Yeah. Some guy reached out to me. He was an old, like an older guy, and uh, sounded like he's in the seventies or eighties, and told me the same thing. He's like, you have a few thousand dollars that's unclaimed that belongs to you. And it's not on the website if you search for it. Or like, he told me like this obscure thing, but he said he wanted me to sign something with my social security, giving him power of attorney to claim it on my behalf. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him. It's kind of sketchy though, right? Like you don't know what he's going to do with it. Right, exactly. So I said no, but I said, how about this? If you trust me on this one, I will pay you, but I've got to claim it myself. And he went out on a limb 
He gave me the information, where to find it, how to claim it, and I paid him. Hmm. What what was it? So basically, uh, the uncommissioned un that was sent to an old address or something like that, uh, yeah. and was never claimed. The unclaimed funds is really cool. If you guys are listening, you can see if you have just any money that was sent to you. Maybe you moved houses, so it got sent back to the post office or whatever. It all goes to this one main database where you can log What's in. What's the identifier? Your, your social or how do they know? Uh, where it's you like are, your name, or, your or address, and that's all public information too. Okay, so you can look up other people's names, see what unclaimed funds they have, it's where it got easy. sent, and yeah. everything. It's very easy to search now, up. I thought the it. hard part about that was that. Each state has their own process for unclaimed funds. No, they don't. Uh, no, I think they do. Yeah, you're yeah. Right. and yeah. so I thought that's what makes it more difficult because um, because each state is separate, and you've lived in multiple states. What states do you check? And I think that that's where a lot of those companies profit because let's say you used to live in Texas when you were. 18 and 19, but mm -hmm. then you move to California, a lot of the companies, I think, are just scrubbing every single state. And you would never think to ch check Texas because you're like, I lived there two years. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a good business. It's hard to scale, though. And you got and the person has to either have power of attorney or claim it themselves. Hmm. It's difficult to claim. Hmm. I hated it. Like, you have to mail something in, and then you have to wait, like, weeks. I think it was, like, 9 to 12 weeks to get your money back. Hmm. So, and usually, unless it's, like, more than $100, it's not even worth it. There's plenty yeah. that are like four or yeah, five dollars yeah, yeah. on there. It's like you're gonna pay more in postage. Right. I, I tried for one of my friends' dads. I was just looking up everybody in my contacts. <laughs> yeah, it was like twelve grand yeah. in un, like yeah. unclaimed oh, funds. Wow. I'm like, oh my god, twelve thousand yeah. dollars. I texted my friend and he was. I was like, dude, does your dad want twelve grand? <laughs> yeah. Look, man, yeah. I'll do this for free. Yeah. You know, obviously, like hoping to maybe get a little yeah. bit of money on the back end, maybe nice. a few hundred bucks or something. And then he he looked it up and it was the exact same name as his dad. Like, oh, and right him? near his address different person wow right near where he lived same name as his you dad crazy different person. the other guy could probably claim it and they wouldn't know <laughs> they would just, all right <laughs> yeah, here's twelve thousand dollars yeah there you go very well could yeah or actually the socials wouldn't match yeah. up oh true so no you couldn't do that but anyways yeah, enough on our, our past business ideas yeah. uh let's talk about teachable yeah because that was like the not the end all be all but kind of like the thing that really yep. got yep. you going yep absolutely uh yeah ended up I had a couple of courses at, on Udemy, was you know making a few thousand dollars a month teaching, but soon realized that when you're on someone else's platform, you can't really scale it because they control pricing. I would work hard to bring students to my Udemy course, but then they cross-sold my competitors' courses. All of that made me realize it's very, very hard to scale a business. So I ended up building, again, a very simple app for myself and my, my buddy Conrad to put our own courses on our own website. Uh, it was a little side project at the time, and yeah, it worked for us, and then we got customer number two, three, four, and six months in made me realize we may have a business, um, and then went to Silicon Valley, ended up raising money for it, and off to the races we went. What was that process like in the beginning? When did you, what was the moment you realized this could be a business? Like, how much were you making at that time? So, I think it was when we got our second and third customer, at which point the total course sales on the platform were about... <clears throat> Five ten thousand dollars we kept fifteen percent so fifteen hundred a month, which is but more than that there's a path to scale it. Mm -hmm. That was when I started thinking there may be a business by the time we actually raised money, we were I think making about you know four or five thousand dollars a month, a little bit more um, and we're like, okay, I think it's time time to go to Silicon Valley and raise around and all of that. How do you do that? How do you just decide to go to Silicon Valley and just so this is where the in. Facebook app stuff was helpful because I'd already gone to school at Berkeley, so I'd known. A lot of met a lot of investors during my time there and I had a roster of people I could go back to being like hey you know I met you when I was 19 20 years old um, are you interested in investing even then it was two months of rejections 
two months of everyone being really nice, saying we love it and not following up until we got our first investor, a guy named Matt Brezina, who did not realize he was our first investor, actually. He said, yeah, I'd love to invest. Um, let me know bank details. And I immediately ran, incorporated the company that day, went to the Bank of America near my house and replied back. and like, yeah, here's our wire info. No, no big deal. Um, but yeah, it was it was quite a process to get our first first. What, what did that deal look like in terms of like how much was invested and how much did you need or, or was it I'm just wondering like a why you even or? decided to raise when it's I feel like a pretty low overhead business. engineers are expensive oh. like if I were to like summarize it in like one sentence engineers are expensive I had written the code for the first version of the app I'm a bad engineer like you know like what I built was great for validating a side project you can't build a company of what I built so we had to go out and hire people and you know at the time engineers were you know, maybe $100,000 a year would be the starting salary. It's gone up a lot since then, but even that, you can't bootstrap that. Um, so I ended up, I didn't know how much to raise. I picked numbers. I was like, oh, let's raise $1 million at an $8 million valuation. And we kept shopping it around until someone said yes. Why is it an $8 million valuation and not a 6 or 10? I can't tell you. They're all equally arbitrary. Uh, but that's what we went for. Yeah, I feel like a lot of those startups, because uh, we have our uh, mutual friend, uh, Sebi, mm-hmm. and a lot of them I hear, how do you come to that? And it just seems like they all pick like, you know, 25 million or 20 million, 50 million. Like they just pick these numbers yep. uh, and raise from that. Yep. But it's all equally arbitrary, right? Yeah. Like I had an investor say, hey, this sounds like a $6 million deal, not an $8 million deal. I'm like, your number is as arbitrary as mine. Like neither of us can actually justify right. this. Uh, but for me, I kept saying eight until someone said yes. And then we went with it. How much did you need and what was the runway? How much did that give you? So we we originally aimed for one and we then ended up getting a little bit more, a little bit closer to two. But the goal wow. typically is you want to underestimate or say a smaller number so that you can fill it up and go above. Because if you have too high a number and you don't hit it, it's a worse signal. Uh, but again, our round was it took a very long time to get the first check. But after that, everything else happened in two weeks. Is that because you could say this other person invested? Yes, Yes. investors are like very scared of moving by themselves. And when you have momentum, aka other investors are are on board. And for us, one of the turning points was when Naval, the founder of AngelList, came on board and messaged his syndicate on AngelList. Yep, then the rest of the round happened in a weekend. I think it was like the 4th of July weekend. And like just over that weekend, we got everything. Oh my gosh. What's the average amount that someone would invest in a startup? Uh, so for us, we had, I would say, if I were to guess our average, we had a few 25K checks, a few 50K checks, and a few 100K checks. Um, that was sort of the typical sort of range. Do you think that's typical of just industry standard that most people... For individuals, yes. For funds, it's, it's larger. Sure. For individuals, I think that makes... yeah. It was Sebi that told me that um, I think it was one in, only 1 in 25 on average is going to hit. Is that true? So like you have to, on average, invest 25 times without one to make up for all the losses. Yes. I mean, I think it, it depends. Like, let's say out of 25 companies, what I think it might actually look like is 10 companies return zero. Um, you know, another 10 companies return roughly your money back a little bit here or there. Maybe three return 2x. But one of those is what will return 10 or 20x or 50x. And that's where you make your money. When you look yeah. at where you make your profits from as an investor, it's typically one company or two companies got it and you could have a hundred companies that have you know returned very little yeah so when you got that initial funding yep. did that last you for like a year or two or like how did you structure that it to- lasted it la- yeah so i mean that allowed us to hire four people and from that with that you know we had a couple of years of runway 
But then at every point, we ended up raising more money inbound that we never, ever got close to spending all of it. In fact, over the lifetime of Teachable, we raised $12 million and we had nine in the bank when we sold. Oh my God. So once the business started working, we ran it pretty close to profitability, not fully profitable. This might sound silly. Why raise money when you don't have to? Because I feel like it's it's much more powerful to retain more ownership than raise way more than you need. I think there's a deal structure that works for everything. The last round before we sold, we raised $4 million at 130 million pre-money valuation. So it means we sold 3% of our company for $4 million. So I would say you're selling so little. Yes. So even then though, a lot of investors didn't want to invest in us because we didn't want to sell 20%. So I'm with you, right? If you don't have to sell, you can do these weird rounds where you sell 3%, 4% where you don't feel much. And 4 million made me feel a lot better about my company's, you know, cash position. So I think there's, the other, the other thing is I also think it's helpful to have the right investors on board. So jumping forward a little with yeah. my new company, we're raising a lot of money just from dope people. In fact, no one can invest more than $10,000, uh, but we're raising one to $10,000 from you know a couple hundred dope people because it's nice to have smart, connected, networked people invested in our success. Yeah. So how much of that is money versus how much is just getting someone on board that you could hop on a call with them and ask them questions. It's much more that and also like this army of supporters whenever to help us tell our story. Got it. So growing Teachable, what was that like once you hired these people? How did you find more creators to go on the platform? Yeah. So, I mean, again, like it was, it took quite a while to hit any kind of scale. It took us almost, it took us a long time to get to about a million dollars in annualized revenue. But from that point, actually it took us quite a while to get to 5k in monthly revenue. But from that point, we were able to grow much faster after really figuring how to market, which for us was leveraging other creators' audiences. We realized something pretty special, um, and you're a teachable creator, is a lot of our top creators, people who followed them and looked up to them, were also potential teachable creators. So we ran a lot of webinars, a lot of events, our affiliate program is very big. As soon as we figured out that go-to-market motion, we were able to scale much, much faster. Uh, but even then, it wasn't easy. I mean, it took took many years and, yeah. you know, continually figuring out lots of different things. And yeah, eventually we got there. Now, I remember something about you having very few creators on the platform, but your revenue was so substantial compared to how many people were on there, right? What, what, what did that look like? Yeah, so in general, we made money from our creators, not the students. So we would charge our creators on average about $70 a month in software. Mm-hmm. And we made a little bit on payments. On average, we'd make about $1,000 a creator a year. And from that point on, it was just, what can we do to acquire the most number of creators? And some of the creators made a lot of money. Like we had a creator who made, you know, $20 million. And on an average year, we'd have, you know, like tens of creators that make over a million dollars a year. So real, real money. Um, And yeah, and they would still only pay us, you know, about $1,000 a year. So it was pretty good value for them since we didn't charge a percentage of sales. How long did it take for you to run Teachable for it to be profitable? We were never profitable. We were always profitable close to profitability. We were always three months. If I didn't hire anyone for three months, we'd be profitable. It's roughly how I ran the company. So you're just focused on just growing as fast Correct. as possible, Correct. basically. Well, yeah, not, yeah. Like, so at any, I would say our average burn may have been like, you know, 30 to 50K. So that's like three people or whatever. So if we were continually growing. So if I don't, if I stop hiring people for a quarter, we'd be profitable in three months. Mm. That's sort of how we ran and it. And was the goal always to sell eventually? The goal was never to sell. The goal was, the goal was, yeah, just keep building the company. But we ended up getting an offer at the right time from the right people, which was this company called Hotmart in Brazil. And what I like the most about them is they're a founder-led, founder-driven company. Um, like, met the founders in New York, and yeah, just really liked their energy. 
realized we saw the world the exact same way. And it had also been at the time almost six years of building the company. The timing just seemed right. And yeah, it was just a match sort of made in heaven. But at no point did I, you know, go out to try and sell the company. We never, we never looked for a deal. The deal found us. Yeah. What were your biggest challenges in scaling? People. Uh, it's just like, I love creating things, but I realized I didn't like operating things as much. Like, I, you know, creating something is so exciting. It's a completely different skill. It's a high. It's a rush to build something where nothing exists. But to operate something, to hire managers who manage other people, you're so far away from creating. I personally found that very challenging. Found it hard to get excited about that. I burnt out numerous, multiple times. Found it hard to recruit sort of executives because executives are so different from founders, right? A great executive is nothing like a great founder. Um, so I, that was stuff I struggled with. And I think that also realistically probably contributed to making me more likely to sell is the fact that I think I was starting to feel a bit burnt out of managing managers, of operating, of running a company of, you know, a couple hundred people, and you're always dealing with problems versus the excitement of creating something. What were some of the problems you had to deal with? It was just people, man. It was always at every given stage. It's like the, I'll give you an example, right? So because of the structure we were at, if you wanted to do, if you wanted to build something new when you're a five person company, you just go ahead and do it. Now we would have to talk about it in our annual planning meeting, which would then have a budgeting process associated with it. We'd then work it into our quarterly roadmap and we'd then start having, you know, so from the time you want to do something cool till it happens is like 12 months or something. And that just takes a lot of the fun out of it. And yeah, and I constantly had this feeling that I'm also probably not the best CEO for the company. It was also this nagging sense of like, not only am I not enjoying this, there's someone out there who's an amazing CEO and they should be the one running this. And is that... I don't know if this is the right word, but like bureaucracy within business, like that adds all those logistical issues, just something that n- needs to start happening once you go to that level? Or is it like a government type thing? Like it's policy so I, that's... I, honestly, I also don't know, is this inevitable or not? Some degree of it is inevitable, but I'm not sure, again, right? My first time running a company, if I'm sure I could have done it and set it up in a better way as well. Some level of process is inevitable, but mm. I think we may have had too much and it may have been my causing for all you know, right? So that's sort of the the stuff that I thought a lot about. And to be quite candid, I also think I had a lot of ego attached to being CEO then that I didn't just let go. Like, like knowing what I know now, if I were to be in a similar situation, I would probably walk away and hire someone who's a hired CEO and have no ego about it. But the first time you're like, oh, you know, I want to be, it's my company. I want to be the boss. I want to be the CEO. Um, so I think there was definitely an ego play as well. Hmm. What was your day-to-day schedule like back then? Meetings, just meetings really? and meetings and meetings. Yep. Um, so I would guess, you know, the core, like year four, year five, I'm spending 60 to 70% of my calendar in meetings, which was, again, soul crushing. And yeah, all of these things sort of made it when, you know, when we got closer to the acquisition, it seemed more appealing to be able to like have more creative freedom and stuff like that. How do you learn how to do all of this? Is it just figure it out. Figure it really? out. Yeah, exactly. I think it helps to talk to a lot of people. So that's why I raised money from other founders. And it's always very helpful to talk to founders who've gone through the same process and, you know, learn from them. And then there's also just a case of like iterating. You try something, it works, it, you know, it, it, and then you get better. Um, funnily enough, doing this again, what I will now do is trust my instincts more. The first time around, you feel like you don't know what you're doing. So you almost listen too much to other people. 
while now I just feel more comfortable that no one really knows anything. And you may as well be authentic to what gives you the most energy sure. and trusting your own instincts more. And can you say how much you sold it for? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm not allowed to officially confirm or deny a number based on our deal, but you know, there's an article that says it was somewhere in the range of $250 million. And I think, that, I think that's, that's directionally accurate. Got it. And what was that like? For, was that a number that we can't confirm or deny, but was that an amount where you're just like, holy crap, like, is this real? Or at that point, was I, that I didn't just have like a number. A, I mean, I just wanted to get a fair price for the company. And by fair price, I didn't want the best price. I wanted like the 80, 80th, 90th percentile price. And based on what the business was at the time, which was doing, I, can't remember, I think it was $20 million a year when we were negotiating the deal and $25 million a year when we sold it. It was a good price. I don't think it was an outrageous mm -hmm. price. I think it was a pretty good price. Um, and that, that's just what the business was worth. I don't think it wasn't a number I had to hit. Like if, yeah. if we had been a bigger business, I would have wanted more or mm -hmm. a small business yeah. wanted less. And you can't say exactly how much your stake or equity in that company was at the time. No, but I mean a good amount. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. ended up, uh, and the deal was half cash, half stock, um, because I'm also optimistic about, you know, what Hotmart, the parent company is doing and, and, you know, on part was treated very, very well there and continue to be involved there at the board and all of that. Yeah. So what did you do after signing the contract, having it done? Took six oh, months did, in between yeah. because okay. structuring a deal, as you learn, there's so much nitty gritty and stuff. And why the day we ended up signing the deal, right? This is the day like the deal was done. Mm -hmm. um, was the day that the stock market had the biggest crash in history because this was when COVID was becoming a thing. Oh, man. And the day we announced the deal was two days after New York shut down. So it was very interesting. I'm like, I just sold a company for a lot of money, yet I cannot leave my apartment since we're in lockdown for the next two months. But, but yeah, overall, I mean, I think it was a sense of like gratitude and also just like, also just recognizing our privilege at the time, because at the time New York was going through a really bad wave. It was so much uncertainty and yeah, it was an interesting time. Little did you know, though, that like that lockdown, I'm sure for Teachable. Oh, yeah, our business doubled. Our business massive. doubled right after we sold the company. Um, Do you ever look back and think, oh, man, how did I just waited? In the no, because you still sold right half of what yeah, you sold. But I also, but I also don't for a very specific reason. And that is like, I feel so fortunate for everything life has given me. I don't want to be a rich asshole who's like, oh man, I wish I could have had more. Like in general, like, you know, there's two paths. I can either be so grateful. I'm like, like life has been so, 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 so good to me that yes, could have sold it at a different time for more money. Yeah. But like, if you're going to talk about all the things that could have gone even better, like just be grateful, right? Well, like, you can't so even much, enjoy your wealth. At that yeah. Point yeah. Like so much, so much has gone so right for me to have what I have. Who cares about sure. you know, anything else is like, yeah. I love that mentality. Yeah, yeah. I asked Tom Billy this from Quest, but when yeah. you sold the company, let's just say, I'm just going to say a random yeah. number could be completely yeah. wrong, right? But if you got 50 million in cash and like another 50 million or whatever in stocks, yeah. did that money just hit a bank account? It was just Yeah, a, I mean, so whatever cash it out, yeah, it did, it did, the whole thing hits and you pay taxes on that later. And can you say what the most that you had in that checking account before? <laughs> before, 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 yeah. Before, yeah. Can you share your bank I mean, statement for that? I don't know. Like, I'm reading his like face, and as when, it starts I mean, to grimace, and I'm like, okay, but before, but before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I can tell you, my salary at the time was 150 grand a year, uh -huh. um, like tens, like probably like 20k or something like that. 20k. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I've probably talked about how much I paid myself. I mean, I was paying myself. I think I started paying myself 70 grand 
then 105, then 120, then 150. And it was at 150, we're like, I'm not, not making any wow. more dollars as yeah. for my salary. So and you, it's just, you went from $20,000 yeah. in a checking account yeah. or savings account or whatever yep. to well into the eight figures. Yep. Jack's next question is like, if you could express that change in a percentage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a factor. Or yeah. a decimal. Yeah. Or any of that stuff. Yeah. God. How did, that, how did that change your life afterwards? Uh, changed. Okay. So, I mean, we're in a house, right? I was able yeah. to like move out of my 400 square foot apartment and buy a house. Um, the things that added meaningful value is family. I was able to like, oh, actually an interesting point. So my happiness did not change at all when the money came in the bank. It did not change at all. Um, post-selling my company, but nine months after that, when I stopped being CEO, I became substantially happier. So first sort of lesson was like the money was indirectly made me happy by giving me freedom but the freedom was what actually made me happy um another way that it like greatly improved my life is i was able to like just one see my family a lot more to take the family on like more vacations and like yeah just hang out with my like parents much more and being able to do that stuff for them i think was was really really great but for my own life i think it was i think i heard someone express this really well where they're like when they had money, the best part is it solved the money problem. It's not like buying fancy things, but it's at no point are you stressed about money. You go to a restaurant, you're not stressed about it. Like wherever you go, like money is just something you don't think about. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's been the most valuable thing is I don't think or stress about money. And that's something that, again, I try and remind myself of because I know so many rich people who have more money than I am, but they're still stressed about it. They either want more or like upset about how much they pay in taxes or something. And it's like, for me, the money problem was solved, and that's super valuable. I don't think about it. It's it's great. And then after selling, how did you get back on the horse to build another business? Yeah, so ended up selling the company, started started a fund, invested, and while I was investing, I was traveling a ton. I uh, told myself I never wanted to start a company again because in my mind, I just remembered how hard it was. Mm -hmm. But you know, a couple of years pass. Um, after a while, I realized I missed the sort of meaning I got from building a company and also it's it's a little bit where I do think I'm actually good at creating a business and like you know it's like I'm like an athlete who misses playing their sport I'm like you know that's my that's my thing I I, I miss it I want to compete I want to you know I want to I want to put my hat in the ring one more time and build something super valuable I think this time it will be the last time I do this uh, because I want to build something really, really valuable. But I had one one big swing in me. Oh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the new company, yeah. it's based on my learnings while I was selling my business. Right before selling my business, I hired lawyers and accountants and all these expensive finance people to help me figure out how the tax code works, how to structure stuff. And it made me realize there's a lot of things people don't know about. Like in terms of how to actually keep the money you make, there's this whole black magic that has thus far only been for rich people, right? Whether it's like setting up trusts or like how to best leverage retirement accounts and all of these things. And I'm like, people need to know about this. Everyone needs to know about this. So the goal with this business is to help business owners keep more of the money they make. And we'll do that by teaching them how to, but also building products. So we built a product that's a retirement account for anyone who works for themselves. And we'll keep building products like this, but really things that help people understand this crazy tax code we have and keep more of the money they make. All right, I'm, uh, teach me. Yeah. I, let yeah. me be the case study you sold here. Me on what, this. Could you, where would you start? Just pretend like I am your student right now. Okay, so where, the first thing yeah. I would talk about is like wherever possible, I think being a business owner is amongst the most tax advantage thing you can do. There are so many benefits. 
right from the fact of like capital gains, right? Like you pay a lower tax rate by owning assets versus cash. The worst type of income to have is a salary. Um, but within that, there's so many sort of different optimizations based on where people are and what they want to what they want to do. So again, we'll start at very basic. But like if it's someone who's making you know $150,000 a year selling courses, what I would tell them is one, you probably they probably are set up as an LLC. They probably want to move to an S corp because they'll save on self-employment taxes. Mm -hmm. They probably want to make sure they're claiming their deductions correctly of all of their expenses, right? Like right from home office, internet, all of that stuff. Um, want to make go through their business is there anything that can depreciate if there's any real estate tied to their business there's depreciation stuff there's business tax credits and that's for that type of person if you're a startup founder there's something called qsbs which is where you pay no taxes on up to 10 million dollars when you sell your company but you can set up a trust and multiply that to 20 or 30 million no matter what the scenario is there's a lot of crazy stuff and yeah our goal is to teach people how to do that so is this stuff that a good accountant should know yes a good accountant should should know not all of them do they don't yeah um and then some things are the technology so a retirement account for one person like i tried to set one up myself it was impossible mm -hmm. which is why we built a technology ourselves where someone is self-employed we set up a so a 401k for themselves but the cool thing with mm -hmm. the solo 401k is you can invest it in any asset you want you can invest it in startups crypto real estate and you can get a sixty-seven thousand dollar a year tax deduction mm -hmm. uh if you want you can also do roth contributions which mean it, you never pay a dollar of tax on it post-retirement, and there's no income limits. Unlike a Roth IRA, which is limited to people who make less than $150,000 a year, a Roth solo 401k, there's no income limit. So you can make a million dollars a year and still put in $67,000 into a Roth 401k using something called a mega backdoor conversion, which again, is this like niche tax strategy. So I did one of those yep. uh, last year. And it was one of the most complicated things. It took, like, honestly, for me just to set up all of the different accounts and get them to yep. communicate with each other and stuff, it probably took to, to, close to two weeks. I got started, it was like December 7th, and I was like, okay, like, I'm good. Yeah. I have like three yep. weeks, nearly yep. four weeks yep. to get all of this yep. situated and everything. Start creating an account here, create an account here. I have to link these accounts. I have to wait for this, yep. like, thing yep. to get settled, and then I have to, like, withdraw the money here. It was incredible it was it took so long and yep. i almost didn't get it in time i think i got it on like the last day possible yep. and i had so much money in wire fees for, and it's like crazy it's, it's crazy it's terrible it was yep. so stressful and i hated it wait so, a yeah. minute you you made a, a a roth no 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 sorry a yeah the roth a backdoor yeah yeah and uh, what was the limit on on the to 60 have, on the 401k it's 67 no 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 what was the limit on the regular roth IRA? uh if you make over one hundred fifty thousand so, dollars a year jack are you trying to say that that I make over $150,000. It's a big flex, guys. <laughs> yeah. That was all that was. I'm yeah. just flex. No, uh, that was, I mean, yeah, I did because um, I contributed to it. But yeah, yeah that was, it yeah. was extremely. Uh, yeah. yeah, but also a Roth IRA only lets you contribute $6,500 a year. But using a mega backdoor Roth, you can get $67,000 in. Mm. So more than 10 times into a retirement account. And these compound tax free, right? So. Again, like there's stories, I don't know if you read about Peter Thiel growing his Roth IRA to four billion in value. I yeah, did. I heard about oh that. That God. was real estate though, right? Or was no. it startups? It was startup. No, it was startup. It was it was it was two it was two steps. One, he bought his PayPal founder PayPal. shares, and then oh, he, that right. grew to about twenty, thirty million. Then he made all his investments, including five hundred K in Facebook mm -hmm. from the Roth. But again, like these are things and by the way, I do think what he did was probably slightly illegal and we tell people like you know, this is what he did, I wouldn't do it for these reasons. But there's such a dark art here that our goal is let's talk about it, let's build tools for it, let's build a technology for it, 
and teach people, you know, how to keep more of the money they make. Because when you run your business, at least for me, you spend so long thinking about your business, no one's thinking about your personal finances. And that's where we want to want to come in. I love how, that. But how would that be different from a competent accountant? One, we're building technology, right? We're building like an, a complicated, like all of the accountants we're partnering with, they're using our technology to actually set up the solo 401k. And as we build more products, they're going to use our software to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, the education is helpful for all the people who can't afford an accountant. So the education, it's like, it's education is two, three hundred dollars a year and you get all this information. It's a community, it's courses, I mean, it's an education business. So, so yeah. Um, the technology is really the differentiator where, again, like accountants will use us, but like we'll be a one-stop solution for you to deposit money, do a conversion, invest in startups, invest in stocks, ETFs, everything. It's a full investing platform. So if someone were to sell their business for, let's say, some hypothetical number, $250 million, would they need all of the accountants and attorneys so and everything, would, or could would, they just use your... your... So I would, at that scale, I, like, again, we still recommend accountants for anyone who makes a bunch of money, but... As this person is building their business, they can learn a lot of things about how to set things up while kind of going through our content. Mm-hmm. But when it's time for the exit, I would still always recommend, you know, an accountant and, and so forth. And does it prov- provide consulting or is it mostly just like education? So, so right now it's education it. and technology products. I think there's a world where we will find a way to work with advisors as well because I think you can, I still right. am, I still think you the human touch is very, very important when you're dealing with people's money. Might be a little bit of uh, Ramsey Solutions where he hmm. has people that you go through that are pre-approved mm-hmm. that know his system. Yep. Yep, and uh, he's kind of the broker between the two. Yep, yep. Yeah, the, the the big difference is long term. We also want to build the best sort of investing platform out there. So the fact that right now we just you know we became a registered investment advisor. We're soon rolling out the ability with one click to buy stocks and ETFs from the app. So it's a full investment platform as well. So. Is it is it operational now? Or yep, what's it's the operational now. The company's been around for four months. We rushed out our four hundred one k product because we needed to hit a December thirty first deadline. So we have you know, hundreds of people that set up their 401k product with us already. Next month, we're launching investing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're off to the races. The education product launches in two days. So lots of... And the one downside I will say with a lot of the 401ks is that the investment options are terrible. That's why a really, solo really, 401k really... is amazing because all the power for 401k, but you yeah. decide how to invest it. You guys have a uh, referral or affiliate program? Yeah, we'll, we'll give you a link. Oh, yeah. oh well, yeah. if you guys yeah. want to check it okay. out. Yeah. All right, well, now it's linked down below. Right it's right down so, in the yeah. description. Yeah. Maybe a pinned comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's interesting. I, I can't remember who I went through or go through for a 401k, but I had to set one up as an employee with, yeah. gosh, I think it was a, a, ADP or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're... They're ter- and that's the other thing we're thinking about. There's a good chance because we've gotten a lot of demand from startups and small businesses that say, hey, this is dope for my one-person business, but I would love to use it at my startup or my 20 or 30-person companies. There's a good chance we'll end up servicing that demographic as well. I think you would need to because yeah. that's the big market. That's, there's a lot of market and there. Just- and, and like a lot of the competitors charge assets under management fees. And I think I think AUM fees are a ripoff typically. Like I think... It's great for the provider. Like we would make so much money if we charged a fee of assets under management. But I think it's not in people's best interest, not in our customers' best interest to pay an AUM fee. Yeah. How do you reach new potential customers on that? Seems very niche word of mouth. Correct. I mean, so right now, right now, Twitter has been, ironically enough, like where we got most of, yeah, because I've been sharing a lot of personal finance, you know, content up there, adding about 200 subscribers a day on Twitter. And a lot of our early customers found us there. 
I think our goal with this company is to spend nothing on marketing and honestly just do a lot of storytelling, the content, the education, all of that I think is going to be a big part. It also helps that, you know, with Teachable, a lot of people in this demographic are people I've worked with before, so that, that helps a ton. When it comes to our investors, we've raised money from lots of creators, for instance. And again, we're not at the point of telling our, fully going public and telling our story, but while fundraising, right? I'm like, we wanted to build an army of stakeholders, all these people that are vested in our success, own equity in the company at a really good price. So if and when the company does well, they own, own a piece of upside as well. That's interesting. And what's a day in the life for you look like right now running this company? So right now we have an office. I love working in person, right? Like we had to work remotely towards the end at Teachable and I hated it. I mm. like the idea of spending my life on Zoom on a video chat. It's I'm, if anyone's listening and does that, I'm sorry. It's just not for me. I love the energy of people. So I go into the office. Like my days are pretty simple. I wake up, I work out, I go to the office, hang out there till like 6 or 7 p.m., go do evening stuff typically. And yeah, evening stuff, evening stuff, what's you know? evening stuff look like evening stuff. I mean, look, we're in New York city. So uh, it's anything from like dinners or going out or I'm pretty social. So I probably end up, I would say doing stuff, you know, five or six nights a week, maybe one night a week. Mm-hmm. I wow. Yeah. yeah. What time so, do you wake up? Seven, seven, okay, seven. So yeah. Still very structured. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. structured. I mean, I'm not going out till 2am and stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a lot of freedom, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that sounds cool. like the life yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's I mean, I love the idea of going into an office. I recently got a WeWork membership yep. you so did I'm, yeah i'm going to we work now what? it's crazy for my productivity really? Interesting. yeah and especially yeah. since i've been traveling at least recently like i was in austin uh, like a week ago and now i'm here in new york then we're going to probably be traveling more this year I figured we work was probably Do you go every day uh in vegas yeah Nice. I go every, yeah, like I, the thing I didn't is even know there was a we work the oh there, there are a couple yeah i literally like i'll wake up and i'm so excited yeah. to go to the office like i i throw in my backpack the th- there's something maybe it's it, because it's new yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I do yeah, think yeah. for a lot of people, like if you find yourself in a rut, it has to do with changing the environment that you're yeah. in or just keeping things dynamic yep, yep. because it's so easy to fall into a rut and it's so hard to get out yep. of one. And to see that there is like light and at the end of the Location changes, yeah. So the thing I'm trying to do, a lot of people love doing work, in, work out of the office three days a week. When I'm in New York, I want to work in the office every day. But what we're trying to see is can we do something like we're working in person for six weeks and then two weeks remote, which will... At least for me, like I also want the opportunity mm-hmm. to work in different places. So um, that's I think something that's about cool. it, right? Yeah, yeah like work great. in New York every day, six weeks, and the next two weeks are kind of remote. And then you go travel the... somewhere. Yeah, so exactly. That's actually extremely yeah. ideal. Yeah. You should consider trying yeah. out WeWork. I mean, you probably would hate it, but <laughs> no. you should come with yeah. me sometime. I would take you. Too weird. Interesting. Oh, come <laughs> on, Graham. You, that doesn't you, sound like yeah. anything I've ever They have kombucha taps, so you can get like unlimited like kombucha. They shop the beer on tap, right? After the getting be- the lot I didn't of know they had beer on used tap. To, you know, when we, we worked at a WeWork, we worked at the original WeWork, which was uh, the one in Chelsea, and it was crazy. Not only would they have beer on tap, they had red wine on tap. They would have cocktail hour at 3 p.m. to come, and I'm like, don't get my employees drunk at 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> they once had mimosas on a Monday morning, and I'm like, this is <laughs> not that yeah, I feel like, like that's like gimmicky. the app, like, that was exactly the opposite of But if you watch all the WeWork like documentaries, fitness, those were, the, pizza, those were the like crazy, this. those were the crazy WeWork years. Those were the years of like summer camp, and like, yeah. and I was, was like, that when Adam Newman was yeah, running? Yeah, it was like, yeah. it was like, and I was like, I was so annoyed. I was like, don't get my team drunk on a Monday morning. We have so much to do. It's fun though. Yeah, you go, fun. they have like everything that yeah, you yeah. need. So much seating, fast to, Wi-Fi. Do you have to pay for the beer and stuff like that? Or no, it's literally it like, to be, yeah. you walk in, yeah. right? You go to whatever floor. It's usually a big building with three floors. Yeah. And then you just clock in and then you go straight to the coffee or the espresso machines or they have these taps. Yeah. They have like unlimited seltzer, like sparkling yeah, water, yeah. like not the alcohol uh, yeah. type. Kombucha, nitro, cold brew coffee, yeah. everything. Now I heard WeWork was losing a lot of money. 
Yeah, but yeah. then that's why there's no beer on tap, right? Then so they get, cut the beer and yeah, now they're yeah, profitable. Yeah. They're, they're still not profitable. They're working on it. But at least what I found is for me to go to the office every day, I need to have a team there. Like on Friday, like no one came in because like a couple people are traveling, a couple people are working from mm-hmm. home. Then I, I'm like, what am I doing here? So for me, going into the office only sticks as a habit when I have a team going in. By myself, I always do it. I do it for a few days, a few weeks, and I eventually fall out of it. But having a team working every day is, is really nice. What do you think of the current work-from-home environment? It's not for me. I think there's work-from-home can work. There's some kind of workers that are very good at working from home. There's also a lot of people that don't do much. Um, so I think, it, again, it's not for me. And it's, it's a thing, though. I think the trend is here to stay, especially for people that are older with kids and all of that. A lot of people don't want to go back. What do you think is going to happen to a lot of the, the big tech it seems like there's a divide between like the best engineers want to work from home and the best companies want people to go in. Who do you think is going to give first? I think you're going to be able to choose your flavor, right? I think different companies will have completely different cultures and you can find something that works for you. For us, requiring the office has meant 90% of people don't want to work with us. And that's been great because the people that do want to go to an office every day, it's a very specific type of person and they're an amazing culture fit. So I actually like like running a company in person when no one else is doing that. I think it's the same thing. I think some people say the best engineers want to work from home and I think that's untrue. I think some of the best engineers want to work from home. Some of the best engineers want to go into the office and I think that's totally cool and I think companies will just evolve to do different things. Kind of like what Elon did with Twitter. Like as soon as he yeah. went there, he was like, yo, we're not having any remote employees. You know, if you want to be yeah. remote, you're going to have to send like me a personal yeah. application for that. Yeah. And then so many people quit, but the people that did end up staying, like they're still perfectly yeah. functional yeah, exactly. right? with 10% of and, the employees. And for me, what it comes down to is my life is more valuable building something in person. Like, like forget the productivity part of it. Like it's just like the sense of camaraderie of like building something together is so much better in person. Like the problem with remote work is it feels transactional. Like work inherently is transactional and you get paid to perform a service. But with remote work, it really reinforces just how transactional that whole thing is. Um, But when you're in person, just you actually build relationships and that's special and you don't want to keep that. What about in terms of productivity? Do you find there to be a difference between the two or do you feel like the benefits are beyond that? I think I'm sure productivity varies person to person. Like for my job in person is great because I'm not coding for long periods of time, but I can totally see if your job requires intense amounts of concentration, how it's not great. But for my work, which is very interrupt driven, right? Which means I have a meeting here, a meeting there. In person is great because I, I, it doesn't bother me. But for some engineers, I get why once in a while, you know, they want to work from home or, or all of that. Yeah. I think it's fully based on the role. What do you do when you ever find that maybe you don't have the motivation or you just feel a little burnt out? Do you have a system to deal with that or you just push through? Uh, for me, I find burnout to be when I'm doing things and not getting the results typically versus just quantity of work. Um, but I'm trying to think. I mean, I haven't felt that way with this company since it's been pretty new, but Typically for me, I mean, you could call this running away, but just like traveling, like changing my environment is like something very good. Even if it's for a weekend, like it's just like book a flight somewhere, get out, like just just go to a brand new place. And typically I find that recharges me. Any desire to uh, have a family, settle down? Yeah. I mean, intellectually, yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I do. I mean, you know, I, I, it's something that, again, living in New York, I think it's it's very easy to get, tra- you know, track. Uh, trapped in a bit of a Peter Pan syndrome where <laughs> it's easy easy to not grow up and I definitely feel feel that a little bit but yeah I'm 33 now and you know at some point I think that'd be that'd be that'd be good yeah I'll be 33 in uh what's two months April. yeah two yeah. months three months it's crazy crazy 
crazy. And I need you to sell two company, are so man. young. Yeah. You guys are still so where, young. What am I doing, man? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> What's something that you wish you knew earlier that you felt would have would have helped you out in starting or creating or running a business? I mean, I think the idea that I got eventually, but the fact that everyone is faking it, like I used to, when I was starting a business, think that all these people had, you know, knew so much more than me. And, and I realized that's, that's not really true. Everyone really has been, is winging it. And this time, for instance, when I'm building a company, I'm a lot more confident in trusting my own choices and my own beliefs. And yeah, I wish it's something I'd internalize a little bit sooner since I spent so much time in my last company trying to do what I thought good CEOs do, trying to do what I thought good managers do versus what is it that works for me as a manager, or as a CEO, or as a leader. Who did you look to, though, just to make sure that was correct? Or do you just sometimes do what you think is best and see what happens? I think at this point, like running a company for seven years and now this and also investing in over 100 companies, it's enough to start seeing the patterns. Um, but at the time, so now I think it's just I've done enough stuff that you see how certain things play out over a long enough period of time. But at the time, it was very helpful to talk to a lot of my investors. It was, you know, I raised money from a lot of people that were other founders. It was very helpful to balance stuff off of them. Uh, but at this point, I mean, I'm 33, but I've been involved in tech since, you know, I was 19 years old. Yeah. I feel, feel like a grizzled veteran. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Where are you investing now? Are you mostly into startups or do you put money on the side and say like, you know, I'm doing index funds and real estate? So my overall strategy, um, which I think, can be used by a lot of people is uh, I barbelled it where I put half of it roughly tracks the S&P. Um, and that is my money that I kind of never want to touch. That's like generational wealth. That's the money my kids and my kids' kids and whatever will have. The other half I'm having a blast with. Um, that is me <laughs> like doing the stuff I want. And 50-50 is, I mean, I would not recommend a 50-50 allocation to most people. It works for me because the the 50% in the market is enough for other people, maybe a different percentage. But the, and the 50% I'm investing, I would say the majority of it is in startups because that's the world I know. I have a little bit in individual stocks, which have done terribly since last year and mm -hmm. I've lost a lot of confidence there. Uh, but yeah, but mostly in tech startups where a lot of it is tied up in my own funds and then some in other friends' funds. And yeah, it's just a world I know very well. And what do you look for in a successful startup uh, investment? What is it? Is it just a? Someone told me that it's really just a, a, a investment in the person. Yep, it's a bet on the founder. And how do you yeah. tell a good founder? For me, typically a good founder, um, they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Like they really want to prove a point. Uh, they move fast, like scary fast. Like you know, it's very interesting when you meet someone. Then you meet them a second time, and you try to think of how much they accomplished in the interim. Mm -hmm. uh, the third is their charismatic and charismatic doesn't mean like superficially charismatic but as a founder you have to continually convince people to do things people to join your company people to invest in you people to buy your product so that that combination you know i think chip on their shoulder charismatic moves really fast um i think those are hallmarks of of a good founder what about the business itself or is that secondary to the person could a good person make any business do well a good person who wants it badly enough will be able to because the thing is the company you invest in is very rarely what the company stays business models change so much so if someone has a bad idea or idea that i think is all right but they're thinking about it the right way aka like you know they're fully aligned on building a venture-sized company it could still totally work
I want to know about the fifty percent of the money that you have that you're just planning on having a blast with. I mean, by blast, I mean I mean investing at Hiwan Blast is yeah. it's not that fun. Uh, it's just like fifty percent. Yeah, I, I didn't okay. think like we're talking uh, like clubs and stuff. No, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't think yeah, clubs. Yeah. 50, I was just thinking like travel. I mean, you know, I mean. I mean, my lifestyle, I can like literally live the life I want and travel and all it's like none of it. I don't have like, like I'm not flying private. I fly business class, but even that, you know, I do through points. My inherent lifestyle is actually like, like I buy everything I want and it's, it's not a very expensive lifestyle. I just don't have super expensive pace. Yeah. Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week did a really good breakdown of like, if, if you want the perfect life, add up how much it's going to cost every month. And chances are it's a lot less than you would expect for like a really incredible like baller lifestyle. Like you want to drive a exotic car, twenty five hundred dollars a month, yeah, uh, three grand a month. See, I personally like, would love to do that, but at the same time, I feel like there are way too many moving pieces in my future. It's like okay, like what is what would my wife want? What would my kids want? You know what I mean? So it's like it wouldn't really work for me at this yeah. time. But I feel like you know maybe once oh, it's you also so down, much, you have it's a also kid. so no, much easier so. without dependence. Yeah, right. Sure. Like I'm no dependence, and I think. I live the life I want. I travel. I think like my entire lifestyle is like it's maybe ten grand a month, mm. which I mean it's a lot, but it's not that much, and I can do everything with that. Jack, it sounds like you're living a life for somebody who doesn't exist yet. So <laughs> no, no, no. I'm being serious. What does that mean? No, 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 that I don't understand. That yeah, and, yeah. Will, and will never exist. That, no, no, no. <laughs> that means you're like living a life like you're not living your life now, but you're trying to live it in the future. If that's what you're worried about. That sounds very Alex Hormozy esque. <laughs> from you, Alex. Yeah, I'm a big, big philosopher. Right so now. you're saying, well, what are you saying exactly? So like, I'm saying, like, don't, don't sabotage yourself to the point where it definitely hinders what you want. You know, wife and kids and a family. Mm. Um, but don't worry about that necessarily now, 100, percent because you're not going to go out and get those experiences. Good point. I actually like that point a lot. Yeah, it's a good yeah point. I agree with that. I yeah. appreciate that. I was, yeah, it's hard to, to uh, like to. Wow, not, I, I made a good point. No, I think that was a great point because I'm always acknowledging. No, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm always acknowledging like what I think my future self would yeah, want. Yeah. But the thing is, I always tell other people this. It's like, it's generally don't spend too much time planning what the re- yeah. you want the rest of your life to look like because chances are it's like something's going to happen and there's just going to be like a wild turn. It's going to be life's completely different. different. You can't Set yourself up in a position to embrace serendipity at every given point. That's wow. Yeah. That's a quote right there. Yeah. That is yeah. a quote. Huh. Was that your quote or yeah. did you? I mean, yeah. Uh, but again, I, I don't think it's a particularly unique or novel thought. But yeah, I think I think the idea that you want to set yourself up to embrace serendipity. Like for me, that's why long-term travel was very helpful in terms of, yeah, you just realize you can, con- when you're traveling a lot, especially to countries that are not super organized and stuff, you realize there's only so much you can ever control and you truly get good at going with the flow. Um yeah, so I, I was all very grateful for the time I spent in between, you know, Teachable and, and starting this just to spend some time, you know, traveling and, and hanging out. How'd that change your philosophies on things? It sounded like you didn't really do much before, you know, selling and then correct, you had the time correct. to go I mean, and explore. I, I, would, I would travel before selling, but I would travel like the way an average American person does, which is like you take a long weekend, you stitch together two days and you go on like an overly ambitious five day trip which is very different from like last year I left New York for six months and right. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to go to random places. I went to Mexico for a while. Then I got a car and I drove around like the Balkan countries, like former Yugoslavia for like almost two months and just embraced these experiences. But it was really cool. I mean, I think one of the things I realized is like people around the world, like I was at a surf camp in Brazil and everyone around me there was just 
so happy every single day like the surf instructor the people around there and then i compare them to like my friends in new york who are like smart successful people running two businesses who are like sad and like you know like feel strung out and and it, you just look around and you realize that like we spend so much time in our lives seeking like the i don't know like success or work or all of that with this idea of like at some future point whether it's when you're retired or whatever that you'll actually be able to enjoy everything. Um, so yeah, I just took some time off and I'm like, what are all the things I would do if I was retired? Let me just do them now and see you know, what it is that actually brings value to my life. And if you could distill that into a few things, what would you say those are? For me, it was very simple. I like spending time outside every single day, like getting sunlight every single day is super important. Two, like moving my body. I'm a crazy person. I walk 20,000 steps a day and have ever since no. I started traveling. So that stuck with me, yeah. I do my calls. And I walk. I walk a ton. How do you like? How do you get those steps? You just go for walks. Or I do, do treadmill. Or? Uh, no, very little treadmill. I yeah. I do uh, any meetings I have that are one on one or phone calls. I do walking meetings. With I people. love that. Yeah, I don't do Zoom. I like that. We yeah. Jack yeah. and I used to go for a run. Yeah, and we come up with some of our best yep. ideas going for a run. I, I I also can only think in motion. I can't think when I'm like sitting at a desk. There was a study that was actually done that proved that as if your if your body is physically moving forward, like yep. you're taking steps. Yep that way like your brain will work at a higher efficiency i just i I need to pace um the third thing third thing was meaningful social relationships like again it's not about um quantity but quality of relationships and the fourth thing was work where i felt like the work had purpose and that was always missing until i started this company i felt like when i was traveling i had three out of the four um but the work with the work with purpose was missing but yeah i realized after all all that time only these four very, very simple things are the only mm. things that meaningfully move the dial on what it is that like gives me a sense of fulfillment. Everything else is noise. So how do you find the time to balance between your work right now and traveling? Uh, trying to find the right balance. But again, as I said, a lot of companies will say you got to come into the office two or three times a week. What we're trying to see is if we can do six, seven weeks of the office, then a week or two where people can work from anywhere. So trying to find the right balance. We're also doing team retreats. We're taking the entire team to Mexico City. Trying to see how we can, you know, build that a little bit into our culture. Yeah. I love that six weeks on, two weeks, like kind of like travel working. Yep. I definitely feel like I could imp- yep. implement that right yep. now. Yep. That would be. You what can, would you? Jack. What would you think about that? You'd be fine with it, Graham? Six weeks where we just like grind it's out some podcasts. We have, well, we have just it, it's the last minute guests that make it difficult. If I go yeah. east, though, I can make it back because the time difference. It's, I would say as long as we never have guests that are booked out, usually more than twenty four hours in yeah, advance. I can yeah, make ever. easy. Yeah, I would say I don't care as, as long as I'm long not, yeah, as you can make it. Yeah, as long as you could make it back for a guest uh, within probably thirty six hours. Because yep. we never have anywhere that's like, hey, I'm only here for the day. And yep. if we do, right. We got, you know, Alex and I will take care of it for you. Cool. We'll cut you out of that one. Beautiful. This right here, I noticed you guys have a great bookshelf. Or you have a great bookshelf. You do a lot of reading? Yeah, I've been uh, reading a lot. First, when I was very young, and then there was like a dark period of seven or eight years. But then for the last five, six years, I've been reading a lot again. Um, It sounds very silly, but five years ago, I created a spreadsheet. And every time I finished a book, I put it in the spreadsheet. So now I have this record of every book I've read in the last five years and but that mechanic made me read much more since it gave me this little little sense of completion um so i gamified it and yeah i ended up reading a lot more you know i did the same thing but with gambling i made a spreadsheet to track my wins and losses and uh i told myself i think i started with 500 bucks and i said when this is all gone 
I'm never gambling again. And just to, you don't know me, but just to give you a frame of reference, I don't go out and gamble, but it's like more like, oh, friends are coming over. And no, because I wanted to be like, all right, I want to gamble 500 bucks in my life. And then once that's gone, it's gone. And uh, (laughs) no, once it's gone, you'll be like, well, let me always make it back. So we're still up right now. So we're up about, uh, about, 2800 bucks. Oh, wow. For Alex, it's investing. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, investing. Out there and so Alex wins like yeah. every time. So what do you like? Sports it. betting or? No, it, it's literally just either blackjack okay. or. So mathematically, you will lose there. Yeah. yeah. 100%. We, we went and played roulette, Alex and I. And he he put in $5, and at its high, it was at like 250 Like, yeah. you do realize in roulette, yeah. even if you do a one to one, that $5 Terrible. goes to 10 yeah. to 20 to 40 yeah. to 8 yeah. And he was at $250 for $5. I don't so recommend lucky. anybody do that. Like, this is literally just like, that's my YOLO, right? You don't right? recommend it's only, it. Yeah. It's only gambling if you lose. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's only a problem if you lose, too. I'm also, this is. Off topic, but uh, I love building stuff. How much did did these shelves cost you to put in? Because they're 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 awesome. They're really cool. Uh, it was I think it was about ten thousand um, dollars, but they're fully measured to oh, okay. yeah. yeah. There's a ladder over there. Right. Oh, with the ladder, with the yeah, ladder. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like the ladder. Yeah. So you said you read fifty books a year. I aim for fifty books a year. I was at forty-one last year. Mm-hmm. This year we're off to a good start. We're at nine already, and it's pretty early in the year. Um, but yeah, I I read ev- almost every night. It's part of the part of the daily routine. For how long? It depends. Could be five minutes if I'm super sleepy. If it could be two hours if I'm super into the book I'm reading. So you do it in bed. Yeah. Hmm. And and while traveling, traveling like planes and mm, trains, all that. And how important do you think it is to be a reader? Because I know from some people I, I very much respect, they always say like, okay, like honestly, reading books is unlike any other play, like yep. way that you could educate yourself. I think that it's, it's extremely beneficial. What do you think? I think reading makes you a more interesting person. I don't think you need to read to be successful at business. And in fact, like as someone who likes reading, I think too many people spend their time trying to read all the business books and they don't actually end up reading like literature or fiction or other stuff so what i try and do is i try and balance it all right yes i'll read some books that are helpful or can you know are like the startup books and stuff but i think too many people are very one-dimensional in their reading they read just to get an edge while i think it's important to read so you learn to love to read you find authors you love to read and it becomes a thing you do to enjoy i think that makes you a more well-rounded and interesting person so um i think reading makes your life better and you should find books you love to read what are your favorite books so my favorite, like some authors, I, re- I read everything by Murakami. Uh, last year, I found this author, Ishiguro. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Another Japanese author. I read everything by him. So what I'll do is I'll like find an author and then like write like something and then you know, read everything by them. I think when I got into reading, really liked Hemingway, Bukowski, like sort of some of the classics over there. Um, but yeah, I try to be pretty diverse in, in the stuff I read. So I would say I read like half fiction, half nonfiction, all over the place. You watch YouTube videos or Netflix or something, or is your entertainment very little? I mean, I watch I watch a little bit of TV, uh, not that much. Probably more sports than than traditional TV, but yeah. Interesting. So basically, you just swap out what other thirty three year olds would be doing on like TikTok and YouTube Shorts, where they don't retain any knowledge. I do do a little bit. I mean, I've definitely like opened TikTok. And been like, where have the last two hours of my life gone? I mean, I'm not, I've not, not had that experience, but yeah, I, I do try and limit that. I, I love your passion for reading. Do you think that there's a difference between reading and audiobooks, or do you think that I can't do audiobooks? I literally cannot do audiobooks. Really? I zone out. My brain is just like 
in a different world. Like for a while, I'm like, oh, when I'm at the gym, let me listen to audiobooks. But I just Spotify, like, yeah. Like music Spotify. No. Wow. Yeah. yeah, for me, I just do audiobooks. Or if I can find it on YouTube, I'll just download it on YouTube and listen to it 2x speed. Interesting. My brain can't keep up. I just zone out. I think of other stuff. And then I I'm like, what, what were they saying for the last two minutes? Yeah. yeah. I'm with you on that. Because the thing is, if you're if you're audiobooking, that means you're probably doing something else. Hence why you're audiobooking in the first place. Yeah. Like you're at the gym. So you're working yeah. out. Or you're driving. So I'm focusing on yeah. the road. But I usually just zone out and figure, you know, yeah. focus on and, like the actual task. And that zoning out, by the way, is very helpful. A lot of my ideas come in that period of when I'm walking, listening to music and zoning out. So zoning out is actually like a good thing. So yeah, audiobooks are not for me. What's your favorite book over here? It's tough to pick a single one. Uh, let me grow I'm gonna, rich I'm right look. there. Like, I really I know enjoyed. Them, there's a book there by Ishiguro, Never Let Me Go. It was. It's a little Black Mirror esque, and that was really good. If I pick one that I read recently. Hmm. And so you got to fill out these top few yeah. shelves. And yeah, there's there's a long way to go. I've been. I think I probably. I buy a lot of books. I probably buy like I would say on average twenty books a month, and no it's still no way. Books are so cheap relative to what value you can get out of it. A ten dollar book can give you an amazing five, six hours and like lessons you retain for so long. Five, okay, five six hours to read a book is uh, it's pretty fast. There's yeah. a big variant. Yeah. I mean, we can't, yeah, like, I mean, I would say books, books can take anywhere from three to 30, you know, like, yeah, but I would say five, six is probably median. Hmm. You a fast reader? I'm a fast reader, yeah. Yeah, it's probably why. Like yeah. 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 I remember uh, books when I was in school taking like weeks to read the thing, like a yeah. month to read a book. <laughs> yeah. I'd be so bad with hmm. it. Have you wanted to write a book? I feel like you would do I do, a great I do job want, I that. do want to write a book, but I want to write a book as in for the art of writing, right? I don't want to write a book in the way that... To, well, actually, I do want to... I, like, there's writing a book to use as a marketing funnel, and there's writing a book to like, like the art of it. Both are probably things I would want to do for different purposes. But yeah, part of me, my like dream like in a different life is to sit somewhere and try and write fiction. I think it's going to be super really? hard. It's be super, that, that's something I would yeah. just do for fun. You know, it's not, not, okay. not for the business of it, but I think it'd be really fun. That's interesting. Yeah. For some reason, I imagine you writing a book on like startups, like a Alex, like a yeah, million like dollar sales. But a very practical. I mean, there's a world. Instance, I would write a book on personal finance, but yeah. that would be for be related to work. That wouldn't be purely for passion. But I, I could see that as well. But the art of writing itself is interesting to me, and I, you know, I would probably write a terrible novel at some point in my life. So eventually, when you do, let's say, well, I shouldn't assume that you're going to sell whatever company you're yep. working on right now. But we don't want to. We want to. Our goal, the company that I'm super inspired and motivated by, um, is Charles Schwab because they were the last sort of big company to come into the space. They were founded in 1975. They're now with $150 billion and they changed an entire generation's relationship with their money. They became a trusted brand. So our goal is to build something of Charles Schwab's size and impact. So I selling. thought Schwab was a lot older. Nope. They're, the, they're like all the other banks are like 150 years yeah, old. Right. Schwab, 1975, they're the young kid on the block. And what would you do, let's just say, if you were no longer affiliated with this business? Um, again, like, go back, like, just think about what are the things that make me happy. Go back to those four things, right? Like, continue, like, to find meaning in, like, all the, you know, traveling, spending time uh, with my family, continuing to just find ways of becoming better. It was very clear early on that pure leisure is not that fun, right? Like at no point, like it's pure leisure, not that fun, if that fun for three days. But I've, I feel like I could pick any activity. It could be, I don't know, it could be surfing. It could be a Pickle sport ball. and get super, super obsessively deep about it. Mm. Um, I definitely have that tendency. Like last summer, I 
joined a tennis league and I hadn't played tennis in a while and I wasn't even very good, but then I got pretty good over a summer. So I can, you know, pick anything and obsess over it. So I think that's, that's quite possible. Hmm. Is there anything you found that's not worth the experience? Uh, Escargot. <laughs> that is not worth it. <laughs> uh, uh, like, it's okay. Like, a thing that I think is overrated, like, are a lot of, like, very, very nice restaurants. Like, mm. I, like, in Mexico City, I went to, like, some of the nicest restaurants. And a few times after, we went to Taquerias right after and, like, enjoyed the food at Taquerias much more. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think when it comes to, like, luxury experiences, I think so many of them are so overrated and not sort of worth the price you pay for them. I agree with that 100%. People made fun of me for this. Uh, you know who exactly who you are. I say uh-huh. as soon as like uh, a meal eclipses like the $20 range, as long yeah. as it goes above that, yeah. I honestly think the food tastes worse. Yeah. I feel like there's something about that 10 to $20 range of yep. food that's just like the, well, the best. I feel like that gets you 80% My Chipotle, there, my Chipotle you know? orders now over $20. Oh. That is not New York. New York double double steak bowl, not even no oh, guac, wow. is now twenty dollars and forty cents. No, oh how much do they charge for double steak now? Twenty dollars and forty cents, and that's and no. You don't guac. get guac. Do you get a drink? Do you get no, chips? No, no. But uh, my friend got the same bowl with guac, twenty three dollars or twenty four dollars. Oh, that's stupid. So yeah, oh, so in New York, ten to twenty dollars gets you nothing. Okay, well maybe yeah, not so adjust it for the subway. Subway so like, I just don't. I, like I, don't I don't like the food there in yeah. general, but I do like that price. I think that in that price yeah. range, if you just go to like a random place yeah. in this corner, you know, like they're gonna have good food. If you get like a forty to fifty dollar burger, I honestly think it just starts yeah. tasting weird. Like the burgers start getting tall. Yeah. No one wants a tall <laughs> burger yeah. at forty dollars. You have to squish it down. Yeah. I hate doing yeah. that because then you ruin like all the art that went into like yeah. building that. Exactly, up but you also like have to basically you get lockjaw when you're trying to take your first <laughs> bite of it. You know, it, it doesn't fit. That's true. Yeah, yeah. and it all ends up coming I mean, out the I, back anyway. Exactly. And then you have no bun at the, by the end of it somehow. The it's bun always, just disappears. It's yeah. always weird. No, I'm usually left with like too much bun. Like mine at the very end is like this much meat really? to like, that I, much bun. I do. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I do miss by the West Coast is in and out So I am jealous that you have that. I mean, and that's very good. Yeah. yeah. And you can, you can specify the ratio. Like I typically get a four by three, four meat, three cheese. It's great. How much is that? <laughs> Probably still like seven dollars. I, yeah. I get a four by four. Why, yeah. why do you not like just I'm, make I'm it healthy, even? man? I'm healthy. <laughs> right. no, you're right. Yeah, 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 you gotta. Yeah, no, I should consider that. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I want to ask this last question. What's your brother up to? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> my brother, my brother's chilling. He's uh, he went to he just graduated business school from McGill. Uh, he's now living in Toronto and working in tech. And yeah, that's the other thing. He and I have gotten to spend and so much more time together um over the last few years since he moved back to this side of the world um but yeah he's great is there ever like a rivalry between you guys now i don't think no. so i think like again we our relationship has grown so much and like i still i still talk to my entire family so often i talk to my parents almost every single day i talk to my brother almost weekly like we're we're very very close as a family and yeah it means a lot that's cool well, thank oh, you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah. it. A great Thanks episode. It was nice meeting you. Thank you yeah. for hosting us yeah, in this beautiful course. home. Oh, also, we got a free stock and for you down below. And also, you can have me on Instagram. I'm sure we'll leave everything that you need to know. We'll be down below in the description. Yeah. Your, your links and everything. Yep. Thank you guys for tuning in. And thank until you. next time. See thank you guys. You. I love that. behind the scenes. Can you flip your mic? And you too, Graham. Can you flip your mic? Oh. So face the other way. Yeah. Got it. Big ground shit. All right, here you go. So, see how the clip goes this way? Okay, see it? You want it to.
Now flip. Andrew, put this at the end of the don't, podcast. Don't put this in the podcast. <laughs> put this at the end of the podcast. Okay, These are first using these mics. I, I'm not supposed go. to know how to. No. You have road wireless goes there the same there thing. There you go. There you go. Oh, look, Jeff, you look great. Handsome. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs>